Hi, I'm Gary Innes and welcome to the Cameron Connections, a series of podcasts brought to you with support from Shinty Memories Scotland. And on this episode, I get the privilege of speaking with Donald Dodo MacDonald, a name very few will remember, let alone have heard of in Shinty circles, as Donald has been living in Australia for the past 50 years. Donald is 93 years old and played with Brayla Haber back in the 40s, and his memory and mind is still as sharp as ever, as you're about to hear. So enough from me, let's now hand it over to Donald. My name is Donald Dodo MacDonald. I was born in Bohunton, Roy Bridge, on the 5th of June, 1928. And I stayed all my life in Bohunton until I came out to Australia. I was brought up by my grandparents and went to school in Roybridge, where we played shinty. When we had our meal break, we played shinty at Glasgow on to Roy. Glasgow were all the foster kids were on the Glasgow side, and the locals were at Roy. When we went to school, we had to walk to school, which was about two miles, and it was very, very cold in the winter time. When we got to the school, it was so cold that the teachers had run a dance in Roybridge Hall to get enough funds to buy cocoa to give us a hot drink when we <laughs> arrived at home. <laughs> that was in the Depression, so there was no money around, so they had to run a dance to get the kids a, a hot drink, which was very good. And we, as we said, we played shinty at the meal breaks, which was very good, and it started me off in shinty. And I was there until I was 13, and then I went to Port William School. And we had, had to cycle to Spion Bridge and then get McBrain's bus into Port William to go to school. And it was terrible in the winter time because the snow would be up stuck in the wheels and we would manage to leave it at Spion Bridge behind McFadden's shop. And when we came back home from Port William, we had to take a little bottle of paraffin with us and leave it beside the bike so that when we got off the bus and went to ride home, we had to pour the paraffin onto the free wheel so that we could get the bike to go on our way home. Yeah. How incredible, Donald. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, I gave it up after a year because it was hopeless trying to cycle from Bohanton to Spearbridge in the snow and the frost and that. It was uh, So I knocked around at home. I became a postman for about two years and then I was called into the army. And when I was in the army in Edinburgh in the Camerons, I got approached by one of the McGregor, Akaderi McGregors, who lived in Edinburgh, to ask me to play for Edinburgh Kamenach. So I played for Edinburgh Kamenach in 1947, and I played against Glasgow and Burness, and we also went to Edinburgh University, and then we went to Glasgow and played against Glasgow Sky, and there was also Glasgow and Burness there as well. And then I was there for about two years, and then I was posted down to England. And when I came back home, I was demobbed in 1948. When I came home, I started playing for Braille Harbour. Now, Braille Harbour was just getting going after the war, and we used to play at Kepach. Now, Kepach, the fields of Kepach weren't permanent shinty pitches. What happened was it used to be cultivated, and so the year that, the, that it was all right, after the cultivation was over, we would roll the pitch and we would put the goalposts up and leave them for a year. But in the mornings before we played a game, because the cattle were grazing on the fields and the moles were kicking up, 
We had to go over the field with a tractor with a big iron gate behind it to flatten all the molehills and cows and horses poo before we started playing. <laughs> One of the games I played in Kepoch, I played against Caberfee. And I was playing at half-back then, and I was trying to hook the ball away so that I wouldn't get clicked. The big full forward came up behind me, and he thought I was striking the ball, and he took the stick right into my mouth and knocked out six teeth. <laughs> so <laughs> that night, well, my uncle was at the, at the game, and when he went home, my grandfather said to him, how did the young lad play? He said, I never saw him play better, he said. And by that time, I was on my way to the dentist in Fort William, <laughs> who was called Dylan. And he was a really humanitarian guy. He would see people, if they were bad with toothing, and if they were like, injured like me, he would see them up to about 11 o'clock at night and sort them out. And when I was in there, because he couldn't inject the, the novocaine into my gums, when he was put, using the syringe, the whole lot was coming back out again through the gaps that had been knocked out. So I had to get it, the needle put back into my palate, and it would go crunch as it was put into the palate to try and freeze my gum so that he could take out the teeth and all the rest, you know, at the time. So... I went to the doctor on the Monday, and the dentist had put cotton wool packing in the gap right along my gums where he had to get rid of the teeth. And he gave me four files of penicillin. Now, penicillin had only been out about five years or six years then. It was invented during the war for the troops, and it hadn't been out very long. So he said to me, go to the district nurse and ask her to give you the injection. So I went to the district nurse, and she was a midwife. She had no full nurse's training. She was just a midwife delivering babies. And she gave me the injection straight into the bone on my left arm, where you're supposed to inject the penicillin into the muscle. And she paralyzed my arm. <laughs> and I had a, an old car there, well, a car that was bought for me by my uncle and grandfather. And to get home, I had to drive with one hand <laughs> all the way home. I couldn't use the arm. It was paralyzed for an hour afterwards. So, <laughs> so I, that was the, the first uh, incident I had at Shinty. All the other teams, Kermali and Fort William and Newton Moore, and can you see the whole lot, every, all around, right around Inverness, Bewley, Caberfee, Lovett. But one of the games we played in Ahaderi was against Newton Moore, and there was a big fellow in the centre there. As the ball was struck out from our goal, I went to carry the ball on instead of stopping it, and he went to stop it, and instead of stopping it, he took the stick right down on the top of my head, and of course I wasn't wearing anything in those days, and the head was going a little bit thin in the hair anyway at that time. Anyway, that was the first episode of any injury. But then I, uh, well, I had quite a lot of cartilage trouble and um, I had them out eventually in Inverness. And when I was in Inverness, having them out in Rigmore, I was in the ward where they do all the bones and, and that type of bones. <laughs> and in the same ward, 
There was two guys there who had TB of the spine. And you know, TB of the spine, in those days, they put them on a plaster bed and they had to lie still for about a year on this plaster bed. And they had a little hole in the plaster bed where they did everything through. And of course, the government used to give a bottle of stout a day to these fellows to improve their appetite and that. And what they used to do was they would keep the bottles of tout and put them in the locker and wouldn't drink them. And then on a Friday night, they'd send one of the orderlies down into Inverness to buy a half bottle of whiskey. And they would get roaring drunk with this three or four <laughs> bottles of tout and half bottle of whiskey in bed. They couldn't go anywhere anyway. They were, they were there for a year. <laughs> so it was, that was real funny one. That was terrific. I enjoyed the stay I had, yeah. against Fort William one day and I was playing against a guy called Williamson and he hit me on the knee 
And what happened was he half the vein in below my knee, in my knee anyway, but it didn't bleed. It bled internally. And it was bleeding all the time I was waiting there and um, chased him up with the scent of the pain I was in. And poor old Pasha came up against me. And he had to wear the brunt of all my hacking and that with it, with all the pain. On the Sunday, I was so bad with pain, I phoned for the doctor. And Dr. Barclay was the name of the doctor in Fort William then. And I, he came out and he said, to me, it's fluid on the knee. And I knew it wasn't fluid on the knee because I had fluid on the knee when I had the cartilage trouble. But anyway, on the Monday, I was so bad, I had to get my grandfather's walking stick and walk on one leg into the hospital. And when I went in, the surgeon that was in the hospital then, he stuck the needle into thinking it was fluid on the knee and we to take the fluid off. And there was so much pressure in my knee that it shot the syringe back full without pulling it. So I just took the end of the syringe and he left the needle in and let it drain onto the floor. And then he said to me, you've got to go to bed now and you stay there for a week. You're not allowed to move out of the bed or that for a week. So I had to go to bed and get bedpan and everything else for a whole week without moving to show that the vein would heal. And yes, and the guy's name was Williamson that hit me, yes. And of course, I also played against all the William team, Pasha and Skinsey and Sunshine and the Wilson brothers and Doxy Cameron and a whole lot more. Charlie Ross and Colin McMillan, all these fellows, yes, and played against them. We played all our games in the town park then, and it was very handy for in and out. Another day, I went to play at Kilmally. And I was playing against a fellow called John Tullock, who was a friend of mine in, in Roybridge School, but went to play for Kilmally. And also in the centre was big Louis Stewart. And Louis Stewart, he brightened the life out of the centre guy that we put into the centre, because I was playing on the right wing that time. And he used to come over... Well, he was roving about the middle of the field, and he would come over onto my side of the pitch when I was playing against John Tullock, and they would both sandwich me. I was getting the sandwich time and again. Anyway, a shinty was broken, and the guy, McGregor guy that came on with a bag of shinties, he handed me the shinty, and when he handed it to me, he said, oh, you're not doing much with it anyway. I don't know what I'm giving it to you for. Oh, if I was nowadays, I would have hit him on the chin. That's what he said to me. Yeah. Anyway, we had a guy in goal, and when Louis Stewart was foraging about on his own, he was going up into the forward line as well, and he got a hold of the ball just outside the 10-yard line, and the fellow that was in goal saw Louis going to hit the ball, and he ran out, and he was looking at him hitting the ball into the goal from the back of the goal, through the net. <laughs> that was one of the times we had, and of course it was the Fraser brothers and all the other Kilmally, Jimmy Chisholm when I played first, and, and the guy in the, from the hotel, McIntosh, used to know all their names, yeah. So um, that was as things went then. Played with Lochaber until we amalgamated with Lochaber Camera. And I played a few years there. But I haven't got any photographs of myself at all playing, but I was playing in the centre. And Donald, can you still remember some of the lads you played alongside with at Bray Lochaber? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I'll tell you what, I can even remember all the Bray Lochaber team before the war. Is that right? I remember every one of these, but the Bray Lochaber team, yeah, Jimmy Keenan was in goal. I also played in goal myself for a while, and I was called Gabby the goalie. So, <laughs> and we had Ronnie Campbell and the Campbell from Spearbridge, 
McCall Lynch, and of course the famous one we had was big Archie McPhee from, from Brackleder. And he was well-built, big, strong guy, and you used to hear him and hear him puffing and coming behind you before he, before he caught up with you when you were playing, yes. Tommy McGregor played for a while with us, and two more other ones, I've got to think them out. Cambridge were playing in the second division then, and we had Duncan McInnes, who was uh, playing full back for us, and he went to Spearbridge and played with the Spearn team. And Angie Carman took over in the back line. And we had two big gangling guys that were in the forward line, and they could never score a goal. <laughs> and of course, what happened was the fellows that picked the team, the McGregors, they put all the good players in defence. And they put these guys who could never score a goal on another guy who wasn't very good, but a favour with the McGregors. And they, um, they had them in their forward line, and they weren't scoring any goals at all, so they were getting beaten every time. And there was one time, this guy from Cool, actually, his name was Charlie Robertson, and he was a favourite with the McGregors, and he played in the forward line, and he wasn't that much good. So one day he wasn't turning up, so they decided they put me into the forward line, and they also got the big fellow, Angie Kennedy, from Inveroich. So, and he was playing full forward, and the best player in Scotland at that time was Joe Paul McIntosh, easily the best. And he used to just take over the back line from back to front, and we put Angie Cameron from Rogers against him, and he tied him up. He didn't, he didn't, neither of them did much with the ball because they were both tied up fighting with one another, you know. But, so the ball was coming to us, and we beat Newton Moore the first time ever, and the only time I can ever remember in the time I played that we beat Newton Moore, and we beat them. And you know what happened? They dropped me the following week and put the Charlie Robertson back in again. <laughs> <There you are. laughs> so I played against the Inveroich, I played against the brothers from Inveroich, and I played against, uh, of course, there was the Wilson brothers and the Roger brothers and, and the Fraser brothers. Just incredible, Donald. You can remember all those names and dates and people during that era. Yes, well, it was... I can remember a lot, but I'm sort of remembering the things you would, you know, you would feel interesting about the injuries and the pitch and all that sort of thing. We played in Ahaderi, I think, for a year. I'm not sure it was a year or two years because the pitch wasn't suitable in Kepach, so we had to play up there. And that's where I got hit on top of the head. But uh, uh, two or three bad injuries, anyway. Tell you a funny story. When I was four years old, I had a double hernia, and I had to go into the hospital twice to get the hernia sorted out. And then doctors were Dr. Conaghy and Dr. MacDonald. They were both GPs, but one of them did the surgery, and the other gave the chloroform. I never had any problem with that afterwards, and that was very good. Donald, I struggle to remember what I had for dinner last night, never mind being four years old and who operated on me. Just remarkable. Now let's go back to your first ever Camina Cup final and tell us where it was and what you remember from it. Oh yeah, that yeah, was terrific, yes, yes. In 1937, I was nine years old and my aunt was a teacher in Roybury School and she had a lady's bike. And I used to go astride the pedals in the lady's bike. I couldn't reach the seat. So I used to pedal down to watch the shinty matches. And that final was terrific. The Newton Moore and Open Celtic were playing in Kepler at the final, yeah. So that was my first real baptism into seeing shinty proper. Although we used to go and watch Braille Harbour playing, and I could name all the, actually name all the teams. There was the Boyles from Bahunton, three of them, and there was uh, my uncle. And there was two McGregors from Akaderi, 
and there was uh, Alistair Cameron and Joe Hunter, Donald Rankin, and uh, almost all the twelves. And I used to go and watch them playing. And funnily enough, the defence, the McGregors and my uncle, they used to play with a cap on. <laughs> they wasn't. They used to play with a cap on. That was the only time when they saw people playing with a cap on. Was except the keeper. I think the goalkeeper played with a cap on just for the sun to keep the body in his eyes and that. Yeah. And yes, and of course, Docks, he played for us at a later date. He played for Fort William early on, and then he played, I think, a couple of games for us at, that in, at a later date, yeah. Because he lived in Inveroy, and he was very good. But uh, I thought Little Pasha was a terrific player that played for Fort William. So were they all. I mean, the Wilson brothers, and Sunshine was a bit of a ruffian, and he wasn't nearly as good as Pasha. And of course, I don't think Skinchy never played for very long. And McGregor was the goalkeeper. Hector McGregor was the goalkeeper. And it was Charlie Ross was in and Polly McMillan. I think when I played with them first, the Blakes were playing there, and so were the Camerons from McIndoe. But largely at the end, they weren't playing. Oh, yes, and I had another. <laughs> One story I never told. When we were playing against Kilmally, we had big Angie Kennedy, one of the Kennedy brothers, playing for us in the forward line. And he knocked Fatty Fraser's tooth out. And he was telling us about it. He had a, a, he had a little squeaky voice, you know, for a big, big man. He had this squeaky voice. And he was saying to us, He's an idiot. He took his tooth out. He showed me his tooth. It was like the ships. <laughs> <laughs> that was the voice he was using. He said, I had his tooth in his finger. And he showed it to me. It was just like a ships. <laughs> just like a chief's. <laughs> Have you ever heard me? I can see you. 
Donald, your memory is incredible and I want to rack your brains a little bit more, please, because take us back to that 1937 Kamina Cup final and tell me a little bit more about it. I mean, were there lots of people around the field? Had they travelled to come and join you in Kepok that day? Oh, yes. Oh, they came from everywhere. Well, everywhere in Inverness, anyway, and all over in Celtic supporters. There was a big crowd around the thing. Probably, I would think, maybe 2,000 people or near enough to it around the field. Right around the pitch was full of because you had all the Newton Moore and Bentonough supporters and you had all the Open Celtic supporters and then you had the people who came, you know, wanted to see the match from Inverness and, and all around the harbour and that. So there was a, a heap of people anyway. I think that was the only final in my time that was played in Kepper. Yeah, I think there had been one for the war that was played there. Now, Donald, there are very few people left with us that even remember Bradley Haber in the 30s and 40s, never mind playing for them. But before they joined forces with Lechaber Kamenach in 1958, what was the rivalry like between Bray Lechaber or Speed Bridge at that point? There was no real rivalry because they were playing as Speed and Bridge and they were playing in the second division. They weren't playing in the first division, so we never played them as Speed and Bridge. And then they amalgamated and called it Lechaber Kamenach, yes. Yes, but it was a good pitch at Spearbridge, yes. And it was a permanent one, that was the main thing. And did you ever win any cups or medals yourself at the Shinty? No, 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 no. A teacup. <laughs> 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 
Now, Donald, you've been living in Adelaide, Australia for the past 49 years, is that right? Yes, yes, that's right. And have you ever returned in that time? Well, I did. I had to go back home for my mother's funeral. She was killed by a motorbike in Clacton-on-Sea. I went over for her funeral, and then I went up to Scotland, and my aunt died, and um, buried her, and then half-brother came up from England with the ashes and scattered the ashes. I've got a video of that. The guy, the lawyer from Fort William, played the pipes. He sorted the house, because when my aunt died, I was left in the house. That was the one straight opposite Rybridge Hotel. Ewan MacDonald, who you probably remember or knew of from Inveroy, he, he ran in the Ben Race along with Eddie Campbell at the time. He uh, built the house. I left him with the plans and going to build it when I came out, and he finished it when I was in Australia. But I had to go back over to bury my aunt and mother, yeah. See, I had to dispose of Bohunton. Ronnie Campbell took it over. The shares I had in Bohunton and the house, he took the whole lot over. He stayed in there from then on. Yes, no, that's the last time I was in Bohunton and went to the Martin Corpac with the cattle I had. And after I came back from the army, I was living with my grandparents who had looked after me all my life. And the house went up on fire. Funnily enough, the insurance agent, Lloydie Gordon, used to come round and try to persuade my grandfather to insure the house. And no way would he spend money to insure the house. But anyway, this year he came in November and he persuaded my grandfather to insure the house. And what happened? The house went on fire and burned to the ground in January. <laughs> so he, he got the money for the house after all. But he was what lucky it was there, yeah. Goodness me, lucky indeed. Now, Donald, we've touched on the fact you've been in Australia for 50 years this year. What was the big attraction? What took you over there in the first place? Well, I got married and there was no way I could have earned enough to keep a wife and that sort of thing. And so I got married and, and she wouldn't go back to Roybridge anyway. She was a boil. She was in Roybridge in the new houses and there's no way she would go back to Roybridge so we moved up to Adelaide. I think one of the Frasers from Fort William came to Adelaide and I tried to get in contact with him and I never did. And of course I was working 12-hour shifts or, you know, to get on my feet proper. But of course nobody here heard of Shinty. They had no, what was I talking about? No, all the rest. So what have I got? Can you see this? I took it out with me. It was in two pieces. Oh, oh I, yeah, I can see the shinty stick there, yeah. Yes, that was in two pieces. I had it done up, and there it's looking beautiful. And that's one of the shinty sticks that was broken, that Jimmy McGregor, the, the one I was telling you about carrying the bag, he threw it in a corner in a dairy, and years afterwards, George Cameron was married Chrissy McGregor when he was going to a dairy and round about. He found that shinty stick, and he gave it to me before I came out to Australia. So I took it out to Australia with me, and I'm showing it to people that have come to visit and to a men's group I go to and that. Showing them the shinty and showing them some of the games on the books and that, that I've got, you know, showing them the games. But they've never, ever heard of it. And not one of the sports view people out here, they do everything from curling right the whole American, all-American type of 
games and, and all the Australian games, never once did they ever mention Shinty, but they do mention hurling because there are a lot of Irish people out here, but they've never ever mentioned Shinty. So the people that are listening to the sports news have no idea what it is, and that's, there's so many people playing it in the Highlands, yeah. Yeah. You clearly have such a love and fondness for the Highlands of Scotland, Donald, but in 93, do you think you'll manage back? No, no, I'm in a wheelchair now. I go about the house with a pushchair, but I have a carer who comes every Friday and he takes me out in the wheelchair and I can go shopping or whatever. We've got miles and miles. We've got about eight or nine beaches down the coast from me. And of course, up to the left-hand side of me are little hills with farms up and sheep and all the rest. Sun comes on a Saturday morning if it's a good morning and he likes doing it himself he takes me out for a drive away out through the hills and then back along the coast road past all the beaches there so it's in a good position yes but um no no i'll never make it anymore well just uh, well i'm just uh, surviving really you know never know when the day will come i've had a few near misses out here as well as in scotland <laughs> <laughs> Donald, as we've already touched on, you're 93 years old and you've lived in Australia for more years than you've lived in Scotland. You've got a huge passion for the music as well, and do you miss that side of it in Scotland? Well, I've got something there to tell you as well. I was listening to Take the Floor in the mid-30s, 35 or 36. We got a radio. My uncle was a policeman in London and he took a radio home and I was listening to Radio Athlone, it was called, the Irish programme, and of course the Scottish programme, Take the Floor, for all the dance music, you know. And of course I played the accordion. I used to go out kailing when playing the accordion when I was over here. I even played for dances in, in Roybridge Hall. I had an old accordion was given to me by a priest's housekeeper and it was uh, had a couple of notes missing, but I was trying to learn the piano accordion. So they knew what I was doing there. Oh, one day I whisked in Roybridge and all the younger young were dying for a dance and there was no music. So they got hold of me. Oh, go and get the accordion. Go and, I can't play the damn accordion. I can only take a few. Oh, it's fine. They'll do it. Make a noise anyway. So I went to get this old accordion with the missing keys. And Kenny Kennedy was there and he played the piano. So him and I started playing the piano and we had a whole two sets of Strip the Willow. And you know, Alistair MacDonald Beheny, he used to be always hooking and yelling and making a heck of a noise. And they were making such a noise that Kenny and I stopped playing and they kept on dancing until suddenly they realised there was no music going. <laughs> and they I used to go kailing with a button accordion and that. And my brother and I sometimes we would go out. He came up from England, he'd play the double bass. So him and I used to go out and we were playing. We played a couple of dances in the hall, I think, with the double bass and the accordion. And of course, after I came out here, I didn't play for a long time because I was working. 84 hours a week when I came out here first. <laughs> 84 hours. What happened was I got this job, but it was an easy job, but a noisy one. It was in a tube mill where they made these steel pipes, and they had a big mill that made the steel pipes. One end, they called it the forming end, where the, the flat steel came in to what the size they were wanting it made, and it got into the middle and started making itself going round, and by the time it reached where it was welded, it was a round shape, so it was welded right along the seam then, and there was an operator there, and then when it came out the other end, it formed different sizes. 
oval square, whatever it was. And I was where this big blade was coming down, chopping at it. And, uh, well, all day long, I would maybe do two or three thousand small ones a day. I would have all that number. So, yeah, that. So I stayed in that place for 20 years. I stayed there. I only got a little bit of garlic, you know, because we lost it because of the number. That was just interesting why the garlic, you probably know why it, it lost out in the highlands like Barrington and then Barrington and that, because the Glasgow orphans came pre-war, the ones that couldn't look after the kids, they, they were sent out there by Glasgow and they were... Uh, no, they were more or less fostered. They, the Glasgow paid for their clothes and all the expenses, and they paid money to the people who had it to um, buy them food and bed and board. Now, every place had two or three of these kids, and that was the only money that was coming in at that time because it was a depression. The money from Glasgow kept the rest of us going, yes. By the same token, they had to talk in English all the time. And the result was the rest of us that were there, we only caught smatterings of garlic, you know, we didn't get a chance. That's what happened. So the result was the whole lot just dropped down like that. In Bahampton, the Campbells were the only ones who didn't ever keep any of these, and they still talk perfect garlic. A chap out here has composed a Scottish pipe tune called Donald MacDonald Leaving Glenroy, and I composed words about Bahampton and Leaving Glenroy, yes. Well, before we let you head off, Donald, and sing that song for us that you put words to, the very tune that was written for you, a huge thanks for sharing your memories and life story with us, and just so incredible to hear what Scotland and the sport was like back in that time and era. Um, thank you very much, anyway, for all that. Listen to an old yacht playing. <laughs> <laughs> it was my pleasure, I can tell you. They called me Gabby the Goalie after a cartoon. Jimmy Poley called me Gabby the Goalie when I was playing in goal for the Harbour, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A huge thanks once again, Donald, and away and give it loudly for us. When I left my loved Glenroy, where I wandered as a boy, not knowing what fate had in store, as I set sail for Australia's shore, remembering my granny's yearly turn as she washed her blankets in the barn. She was a woman of smaller size, her heart and strength were of great surprise. She would cut home wood with a winter fire and milk the cows in our old byre. She smoked a clay pipe every day and a glass of rum to keep chills away. I used to gather sheep to shear with Donny and Doran once a year with collies running round about ready to obey from Cuckoo and Shout. Net netting salmon and hunting beer, shooting rabbits for money for beer, going to the dance in the local hall, enjoying the crack and having a ball. My favorite collie, black, tan, and white, would herd the sheep with all his might. He would gather them in without being told and drive them to the fence sheep fold. Now I think of days gone by, remembering Glenroy and sometimes sigh, not seeing the Glen for one more day before my time comes to pass away. When I left my loved Glenroy, 
Where I wandered as a boy, not knowing what fate had in store, as I set sail for Australia shore. Yeah.